Our first reading comes from the Old Testament on page 4 in the, old, in, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 63, verse 7 to 9. That is in English and Kinyarwanda and Kiswahili on page 5. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us. And the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, Surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he, and he became their savior. In all their affliction he was afflicted, and, and, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. The next reading in the New Testament comes from uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, and it's on page 6 in English, page 7 in Kinyaranda and Kiswahili. Ephesians 2 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in, the, in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, Remember that we at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, 
in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are built together into a dwelling place for, for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Well, uh, endings are not easy. It's been wonderful, actually, the last couple weeks to interact with you. And I know I haven't had a chance to visit with each one of you face-to-face yet. I want to, so we will do that this week. If I haven't seen you face-to-face yet. But endings are not easy. And I think all of us, one of the things that I heard in all of our interactions, one was a lot of gratitude. And I feel a tremendous amount of gratitude to you uh, who have been part of this mission. You've been missionaries for three years through a global pandemic in the middle of major racial unrest. The world is not the same today as it was when New City was planted October 29th, 2019. We all feel a lot of tension. Um, On the one hand, a sense perhaps of failure. What did I do wrong? Where did did we go wrong? What could I have done differently? I mean, I, I have felt that a lot. Another tension that we have felt probably is a degree of anger. Not just, what have I done wrong, but what wrong has been done to me? And there has been. There have been wrongs done, even to us, as a church. Another tension, maybe a good tension, um, in conversations, this, this is one of the things that came up. Um, I call it a righteous longing. Ah, sometimes we, it felt like we were tasting the kingdom of heaven together. I long for more of that. It's almost a, a different kind of bittersweetness because we've tasted the beauty of heaven together. And we long for more. Another tension, though, is the uncertainty. Uh, Mark spoke of confusion, maybe even ambivalence. What is next? Where, where do we go from here? What has God been doing in me over these last three years? I think I have some ideas. And I do think I have some ideas about my last three years, but I'm also very convinced there's a whole lot I I don't yet know. I haven't yet connected all the dots. I want to let Jesus speak into our tension, and I want to let Paul speak into our tension. And then next week, um, next week, you'll have a chance to speak, and I'll have a chance to speak a little bit more uh, testimony. But I want, I want God's Word to guide us today. So let me pray before we um, look at this chapter, New Cities chapter, 
Ephesians chapter 2. This is our, this is our church chapter, y'all. Let me pray before we get into this. Lord God, your word is always powerful. Anytime we open the scriptures, God, we are handling the sharpest sword. Your word penetrates our hearts. It helps us see the things of you and the things that are not of you. It helps us know the difference between real life with you and the, and the fake. God, speak to us. Speak to us through your Son, Jesus. Speak to us through Paul. Speak to us through the Holy Spirit now. We pray in your name. Amen. Um, so, okay, Joshua and Happy are been here for three weeks. Have you guys had a chance to see White Rock Lake yet? Not yet. Um, Mama Veronica, you've seen White Rock Lake. Mama Mimi, you know White Rock Lake. Um, the, it's a beautiful lake that's a mile from here. It's very close. It's very beautiful. It's a great place to go on walks. Uh, I'm sure Mark Toombs has spent many, many, many times in the parks with his children. Um, it's a lovely place of refuge. I, I'm very thankful that, for that lake. I want to tell you a story about a neighbor who lives on that lake. There are parks, there's beautiful, there's a garden, but you know what else is at the lake? These big mansions. Have you, you, know, you know what some of those mansions look like? There's one big white mansion. It's actually modeled after George Washington's house, Mount Vernon, in Arlington, Virginia. Uh, you, can, you can go see it. And you'll see a, a replica of George Washington's house. I want to tell you a story about a neighbor of ours who has a mansion at White Rock Lake. Big yard going down to the lake. One day, this neighbor needed some help with the yard work. This was a rich man because he lived in a mansion at White Rock Lake. And this rich man needed help with the yard work. And he knew where to find help. He got into his car and he drove down Garland Road up to the Fiesta grocery store. And when he got to the grocery store at sunrise, there was a group of men standing under the shade of a tree. Most of these men did not speak English. Most of these men, if you ask them to give your driver's license, they don't have a driver's license. Most of these men, uh, they don't have the right to vote. But they live in our city. And every day these men wait in that parking lot for someone to come up to them and give them a job to do for that day. And the rich man in the mansion knew those guys, and so he drove up there, and he chose five of the men, and he discussed the yard work he wanted to do with them. And he said, I want you to come work for me. I'll pay you $100 for the day if you'll come work at my house. They agreed, and the five men went to work. Now later, at 9 o'clock in the morning, this rich man had a meeting downtown, down by DTS. 
And he went downtown, and as he was driving on the way, he saw more men that were standing around, unemployed. And he felt compassion in his heart. And so he pulled over and he said, Would you guys like to come and work on my yard? I'll pay you. They said, yeah. And so he gave them directions. They put it in their GPS and they drove and they went up to his mansion and they started doing yard work. The same thing happened at noon. And then again at 3 o'clock, the man went out and he gathered more workers. And then at 5 o'clock, this rich man drove back up to the grocery store and he found some men that were standing there idle. And he asked them, What are you standing around all day doing nothing? And they said, Well, no one hired us. So he told them to come and work at his house. Now, when all the yard work at the mansion was finished, the day's work was over, the rich man called his house manager and he said, I want you to call the workers in to pay these guys their wages. Start with the ones that came last and then pay the ones that came first. Those who were hired at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, those who were hired at 5 o'clock were called in and the manager gave them how much money? $100. And when the guys who had been there since sunrise saw $100 for the guys that came at 5, they thought to themselves, wow, how much is he going to pay us? But they got the same. Every worker got $100. And the men that had been there since the morning took their $100 bill and they went to the rich man and they complained to him. And they said, these these last workers put in one hour and we've been working for you all day under the hot Texas sun. So the owner responded and he said, friend, I haven't been unfair. We agreed on a wage of $100, didn't we? So take it and go. I decided to give the one who came last the same as you. Can I do what I want with my own money? Or are you going to get stingy because I am generous? Have you heard that story before? You know that story. What's the point of the story? What's the, what's the point? The injustice of the rich? The plight of the poor? The constant difficulty and unfairness of life? No. Think about the story again. Did the rich man have to hire anybody that day? Did he ever break his word or go back on his promise? Did he withhold anything from any of the workers? Think about how much more money the man ended up paying at the end of the day. What's the point of the story? The point of the story is the generosity of the heart of God. The generosity, the, the extra, the overflowing generosity of the heart of God. Especially when compared with 
the stinginess of the heart of man, especially compared with a heart, the human heart, which gets so easily focused on me, mine, what is owed to me, right? Jesus told this story to his disciples at a pivotal moment in his life and in their lives. Jesus was just about to begin the final week of his life. Right before he would die on the cross. Right before he was going into Jerusalem. In many ways, Jesus' popularity when he told this story had never been greater. Jesus had fed 4,000 people in Galilee. And he was leading uh, this huge crowd, according to Matthew 19, huge crowd was following him. Pilgrims were coming from Galilee down to Jerusalem. He had just healed Lazarus. The crowd had seen a dead man come to life. Jesus' popularity had never been greater. And in fact, very soon, how would Jesus be received when he walked into Jerusalem? Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the King. But Jesus knows something about the human heart, doesn't he? Right before Jesus told his disciples this story, he had had a man come up to him, a rich man come up to him, the rich young man. And that rich young man had asked Jesus, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You remember the story of the rich man and Jesus? And this man who had lived a righteous life and kept all the commandments and said, what still do I lack? Jesus said, remember what Jesus told this rich man? One thing you lack. One thing. If you would be perfect, go. Sell what you have. Give it to the poor and you will have your treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. And you remember how that story ends? Oh, this story, this is a devastating story. It says the man turned away sad, for he had great possessions. The man turned down a personal invitation from Jesus himself because he was so enslaved to his own possessions, to his own glory, to his own self-centeredness. Oh, this story kills me. And Jesus told this story. The disciples were there watching it. And they were shocked. It says the disciples were greatly astonished at what Jesus had to say. And they said, and Jesus told them, he said, it's very difficult for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of God. Not because God hates wealthy people. Not because there's something inherently wrong with the rich. That's not what Jesus was saying. But he was saying it's more difficult because often the wealthy are more allured, enamored, enslaved to their world. <clears throat> Why did, how do you see, you see the generosity of God in this story of the, the rich man? He brought them to work for him. He, gave, he blessed them all equally. 
He was equally generous, and he didn't have to give any of it. When the disciples heard this story, and when they saw Jesus interacting with this man, they said, if he can't be saved, if he lacks, what about us? You see, they had the same tension, maybe, that you and I have. Because they had been with Jesus for three years. They had watched Jesus do amazing, unbelievable things. He had turned their world upside down. Peter would never have boasted like the rich man, I've kept all your commandments. Remember what what Peter said when Peter met Jesus? He said, away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Peter was not under the illusions, but he was confused. All the disciples were confused when they heard this story. Who then can be saved? Look what we, and Peter says, Master, see all that we have left behind to follow you? What's ahead for us? What's next? Can you relate to some of the confusion? I I can relate to that. Twelve years ago, Kelly and I left our lives in Washington, D.C. to move across the country, go to St. Louis, go to seminary. We didn't know what God had in store for us. We got excited about church planning. We started worshiping with one church family that was from people from all over the world. It was Americans and it was Africans from Liberia and Congo and Rwanda and it was Asians from Burma and Nepal and Spanish speakers and African-American And we said, what's going on in this church? Oh, this is the kingdom of God. This is the normal kingdom of God. This is what Antioch looks like. This is what Philippi looks like. This is what Ephesus looks like. Wow. We left St. Louis to go to Boston. We were in Boston three years. God brought us here six years ago. Twelve years ago, I left my life in Washington, D.C., and I'm saying... Just like Peter. See? Look what I've left behind to follow you. What's ahead? Jesus assures me and you. He assures us. Listen to what Jesus told them. My disciples, my friends, my saints of New City Fellowship, remember the beautiful generosity of God. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. For many who are first now will one day be last, and the last shall soon be first, for they'll be with me in my royal city. Don't be afraid to ask Jesus. Look what we've invested. Look what we've put on the line. Was it in vain? No. Your labors are not in vain. I will be with you always. In fact, now you understand something about me. Is what Jesus says to his disciples. You understand something about what I have left to come and grab you and bring you into my family. The generosity of God is so great. That's really what, that's what we're ending with at New City. We're ending 
with sadness, yes, with tension, but we are ending with a testimony about God's generosity. That's the point of Jesus' story, isn't it? And the disciples would find out three short days later just how rich and generous their rabbi really was. Jesus speaks to our attention. Now I want to shift gears a little bit. And you're like, oh gosh, we have a whole chapter to get through. Don't worry, we're not going to do the whole chapter. But I want you to hear Paul. I want to let Paul speak to us in our mix of emotion. Paul is writing this letter three decades after the story that Jesus told his disciples. Three decades later. And who was Paul? Paul was a beggar. Paul was a recipient of grace. Paul said, I'm the least, I'm I'm the least worthy (laughs) to be associated with Jesus. But Paul was a man who left everything to devote his life to sharing the message of the beautiful generosity of God. And where did it land Paul? Where did it land Paul? Three decades later, as he wrote some of the most profound and beautiful reflections on the Christian life while he was sitting in prison. That's where he wrote the letter of Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and Philemon. He's in prison. He's an old man withering away. And Paul is probably reflecting on something similar that Peter was asking. In fact, I bet you could even go far as to say Peter's question is answered by Paul. In this chapter, in New Cities chapter, chapter 2. Paul spent three years planting Ephesus City Fellowship. Three years pastoring there. And now Paul writes to a church. We spent a lot of time talking about Ephesus this year. Remember, the church is going through tremendous turmoil. People are leaving. People are splitting. There is pressure from outside, pressure from within. There is deception. There's false teaching. You know, it doesn't look all that different from Dallas. It doesn't look all that different from Dar es Salaam, from Kigali, from Rockwall. Paul has something to say to the people of God who are looking for assurance, needing encouragement. Um, The main message of this whole chapter is simply that Jesus, only through Jesus, no other way, Jesus and Jesus alone, only through Jesus can a sinner be reconciled to God. The relationship of sinners and a holy God, the vertical relationship, you might think about it that way, that relationship gets fixed and reconciled through Jesus. And that's not the end of it. The American version of the gospel is to say, look, Jesus saves sinners. And then it stops. But Ephesians chapter 2 does not stop with me and my reconciliation with God, it looks at Jew and Gentile. That's who was in Ephesus. 
the church was a mix of Romans and Jews and Greeks and Africans and people from Turkey and people from all over the Mediterranean in, in Ephesus. And the message Paul also says is that reconciliation is not just between sinners and God, but between neighbors and each other. Between Hutu and Tutsi. Between Afrikaner and black African. Between white and black. Between my family came here in the 1700s and lived as church planters on Cherokee Indian land in western North Carolina. How can we even possibly begin to untangle all of this relational brokenness? Ephesians 2. The theme, you know, the great theme verse. Look at verse 14. Oh, look at verse 14. He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Reconciliation with God, reconciliation with each other. That's the message. That's been the vision of our church from the very beginning. And God has blessed us. Look at, look at our fellowship doesn't matter how many or how few we are. Put your hand up if you live most of your life in Africa. Hands up if you live most of your life in Africa. That's most of us. What, what are we doing together? God is at work. He's still working. Grace to the one who is near. Grace to the one who is far. Grace to the one who came at sunrise. Grace to the one who came at happy hour. Christ-centered unity. That's what the world is looking for. There's a lot of other things on offer. There's a lot of other false types of unity on offer. Christ-centered unity. That's that's, That's the normal vision of the people of God. That's the normal outworking of the church. You cannot make sense of the explosion of the church in the New Testament, apart from understanding the cross-cultural, Christ-centered unity of the people of God. It's the generosity of God that's doing this. It's not a social program. It's not Paul's expertise. It's the generosity of God which is doing this. The message of grace, welcome, invitation for sinners. It doesn't matter if you come from a Jewish background. It doesn't matter if you come from a Gentile background. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's what we confessed. No one is righteous. No, not one. The heart is endlessly wicked. Who can understand it? Jesus didn't just come for the poor. Look who's complaining at the end of the story. (laughs) The end of the parable of the day laborer. It's the day laborer who is stingy. The rich, the poor, men, women, Jew, Gentile, we all need grace. And it's the generosity of God. This is Paul's message. While he's sitting in prison, it's the generosity of God which is offered to the world. It's the generosity of God which joins us to Jesus and joins us to each other. I'm not going to go 
line by line through this chapter. Instead, I want to show you six words. I was joking with Joshua beforehand that I, I'm even going to give you some Greek. I try to never do that. But we got to get some Greek to see the, the beautiful generosity of God in this chapter. We can talk about all the different angles. But look at the generosity of God in joining us to Jesus. Um, verses 1 to 3. Almost the most devastating statement of separation from God you can imagine. What is 1 to 3 says? You were dead. You were following the devil, the prince of the power of the air. You were dead in sin. You were following the devil. You were counted among the enemies of God. That's what sons of disobedience mean. You were carrying out the desires of the flesh, the body, the mind. You were an enemy of God. That's the message of the first three verses. And it says it doesn't matter if some of us have a story in our own biography, our own lives, that we can really relate to those first three verses. Other of us have grown up in the church and we've never felt ourselves to be distant from God. But what does Paul say? He says, all of us, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Some were near, some were far. All of us needed grace. Of course, the great ringing message of the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. Salvation by grace through faith. Christ alone. That's what Paul is saying in verses 4 to 9. But what's hidden in there, and what's hidden from Peter, what's probably hidden from me and you, is the specific way that we are joined to Jesus. Is it enough to just simply say, I've been saved? Well, guess what? The Israelites, when they were saved from slavery in Egypt, they had a very particular story to tell. Some of us can relate to that story, so others of us cannot. But there is a very specific way that we've been joined to Jesus, according to Paul. And it's hidden from us in the English in these three words. Paul has to make up the generosity of God is so great, Paul has to make up three new Greek words. I'm going to read them for you. This one is, this one is a mouthful. Suzoapoeo. Suzoapoeo. That's a Greek word for you. <laughs> what you can't quite see in it is at the, at the beginning of it, there's a prefix. S-Y-N. Sin. Not S-I-N. S-I-N, sin, means you're an enemy of God. S-Y-N means with. It's like, uh, in Spanish, con means with. And Paul makes up a word three times, and he puts this little prefix, S-Y-N, on the front of these words that he's making up. We can't see it in the English, but the generosity of God is so great, Paul has to make up new words. What's the first one? Verse 6, I'm sorry, verse 5. He made us alive together with Christ. In the Greek, that's one word. Suzoepoeo. One word. It means made alive together with. The second thing. Raised us up with. That word is sunagero. 
The third thing, the third specific way that we have been joined to Jesus is right after it. We've been seated with Him. Soon kathitso. Did you hear the soon three times? Soon, soon, soon. With, with, with. We think God has done something for us. He's made us alive. He's raised us. He has honored us. He's seated us. But we, we leave off the with. We leave off the fact that it only comes to us to the extent that we are connected to Jesus. We have been made alive together with Jesus. We have been raised together with Jesus. We have been seated together with Jesus. That means we who were dead in our sin, Jesus who, was n- who never sinned but took on death, there's a great reversal. We who were dead in our sin have been made alive to Jesus and dead to sin. We who... <laughs> what's, this, what's the place of honor in, in according to Jesus? The kings have honor, the wealthy have honor, in our, of course in our world, the, the famous have honor. Do the missionaries have honor? <laughs> Do the pastors have honor? Do the counselors have honor? Do the praying grandmothers have honor? I guess not. We've been raised with Jesus. We have been lifted up. We've been regenerated and remade. We who were dead. And we've been seated with Him at the throne. When it talks about Christ sitting down, What is pictured for us there is the victory of Christ over His enemies. You are stronger, you are stronger. The victory, Christus victor. There is no enemy, no sin, no flesh, no world, no devil, which has surpassing power and and greater power than Jesus. We've been seated with Jesus, meaning His victory is our victory. His enemies are His footstool. It says that when He comes back, He is going to lead a procession, a a, a parade. And He's going to be seated at the top of the parade, and every enemy is going to be made to look foolish. This is the particular way that we have, in being joined to Jesus, have been given the riches, the generosity. God could have just opened up the door and said, yeah, 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 come on in. Don't let anybody know you're here. We are with Him in the place of highest honor. Nothing can change that. It's finished. It's done. So what? If that's true about us, we should just we should boast? We should feel like... We're better. We should just sit back and chill. Because we're going there. We'll get there one day. What's the purpose of being joined to Jesus? What's the purpose of God's radical generosity? Verse 10. That we would step into the good things He prepared for us to do beforehand. Pastor Mark just said it. Where will you take the ministry of reconciliation? The ordinary outworking of the kingdom of God among people in neighborhoods, in small cliques. Where will you be a worker for life in raising 
and honoring? Where will you, out of your own union with Jesus, enter into hardship, resistance, shame? We've been made for this. We've been joined to Jesus for this very purpose, according to verse 10. We've been joined to Jesus, and that shows the radical generosity of God, and we've been joined to each other. And that shows not only the radical generosity, but also the genius of God. Ephesians chapter 3, which I'm going to speak a little bit on next week. The genius of God. Paul says, the mystery that was hidden from all the ages has been revealed to me. And that mystery is simply that Jew and Gentile are made one in Christ. The work of salvation means that if you have been adopted by grace, you have a new family. You have a new primary tribe. You're a Christian. That's what the people of Antioch were called when Jew, Greek, Roman, African were together worshiping each week like we do. They didn't know what to call them. They didn't have a tribe. They called them the Christianoi. We have a new family. We've been joined to Jesus. We've been joined to each other. And this displays, Jesus prays in John 17, this is the greatest testimony to the world that Jesus is Lord. Our unity, Hutu, Tutsi, together, worshiping, sharing life, any division, it doesn't, I always say Hutu Tutsi, it doesn't, what division is, is greater than the grace of Christ? He gave his own body in verse 13. It says the re, he gave his very body on the cross to knock down the dividing wall of hostility. If you haven't been to see it, I've mentioned this before, but sometime you have to go to, there's a hotel downtown Dallas called the Hilton Anatole. And this hotel is filled with all kinds of beautiful Asian art. Um, a lot of Buddhist stuff. And, you know, it's, it's really interesting. It's interesting to see what other peoples have worshipped. But one of the most incredible things in that hotel is a huge section of the Berlin Wall that separated and divided East Berlin from West Berlin, Free Berlin from Communist Berlin, and when that wall got knocked down in 1989, people climbed up on that thing and they wrote graffiti on it and they said, you can see this in the one in the Anatole. It says, in German, it says, we've been waiting for this for a long time. We've been waiting for this reconciliation for a long time. East German, West German. What do we do about... What do we do about the division? Forget tribes. What about in your own family? What about among your own friend group? Someone's got beef with somebody else. We are the people of reconciliation. God's generosity in bringing Jew and Gentile together, those who are far off, those who are near. He's made peace between us. There is now one new man in place of the two, there's now only one body through the cross, and now all through Him we have access in one Spirit to the Father. One. The old is gone, the new has come. We think that is just an individual story, but 
the picture of God's generosity is that He is healing the wounds. And He is giving surpassing unity. The United Nations cannot do this. A president, an embassy, cannot achieve this. This is God's genius generosity. There are three more Greek words in that part of Ephesians 2 that talk about using that same prefix, soon. We've been made fellow citizens together. We're being built together. We are being joined together as a, as a house, a temple, one temple, not a divided temple, one temple for the worship and dwelling of God Himself. Paul calls this, you understand now why in chapter 3 Paul calls this a mystery. This is a profound mystery. How has the church missed it? How have we missed it? Uh, thankfully, even if New City closes down, New City Dallas, you have the opportunity to go worship in other New City churches. New City Nairobi, New City Kinshasa, New City Lome, New City London, New City St. Louis, New City Chattanooga, New City New Jersey. The future of New City is the New City. That's what we were talking about a few weeks ago in Revelation 21. It's amazing. It's incredible. God's generosity to us. Peter's question. Jesus had told them they were going to go and be hated, that he would be betrayed. He told them three times that he would die and suffer at the hands of the ones he came to save. And they said, no, no, no. You remember Jesus, Peter and all of his goodwill. Even if they all leave you, I'll never leave you. Peter was on a journey. Paul was on a journey into the suffering of God because to be generous in love brings suffering on yourself. The rich man that hired the workers, he took on suffering. He took on loss out of generosity. What a picture of the character of Jesus. And so Peter asks, and we ask, see what we've left to follow you. What will come? What's coming next? Here's what's coming next. Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. We have been joined to Jesus. We have been joined to each other. This is not an experiment. It's already done. We're simply trying to work out what Jesus already accomplished 2,000 years ago. May it continue. This is God's purpose that all things might be united in Him. Please pray with me. Lord, who among us could ever 
pretend to say what Paul said in Ephesians 3, that studying your scriptures, studying how you redeemed over and over and over again, studying your goodness, studying your generosity, studying your holiness, studying your plan. Who among us could say like Paul that we have uncovered the mystery? It's not a secret, it's just mysterious. Lord, you have been so good to us, to New City. You have been so good to us, your church. You have been so good to us, your children, bringing us from far away, bringing us from near, rescuing us from the plight of alienation and separation from you. You have been so good to us, Jesus, in making us your friend, inviting us to draw near and not sit at the faraway end of the table, but to move up, come closer, join the feast. Oh, Jesus, it is a feast of the nations. And it is a feast that will never end. It is a feast that will be held in your royal city, Zion. And you will be at the center because that's where you deserve. Because you demonstrate again and again, not just one time, not just 2,000 years ago, but today in our lives, in the private moments, in the silence, in the sadness, in the joy and the elation, Lord Jesus, you demonstrate to us all the time your goodness, your generosity, your genius, your love. Oh Lord, may we press deeper into this fellowship that you have begun with us. The fellowship of your suffering so that we might taste and see and enjoy and witness and sing and dance your goodness. Oh Lord, this is our parting prayer. This is your enduring promise, our union with you. We praise you and we thank you in Christ's holy name. Amen.